I don't want a pickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello, everybody. This is episode 77 of the Nokomoto podcast. I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. And we have returning guest, John Delvecchio, with us today. Say hello, John. Hello, everybody. Excellent. We had another one of our 300 Days of Sunshine that we get every year here in northern Colorado. This is the third week in a row. And I'll tell you, I had an interesting day in it, too. We were just talking before we started the show, and we didn't tell John this little special thing. I spent the afternoon testing the latest prototype for brake-free tech, the brake-free brake lights. And it's largely exactly the same as the ones that they gave us a test before when we had Alex on the show and he brought the prototypes by and everything. I think the the finish and the panel fit and everything on this one's a little bit better, but I was riding around all day with this with uh, a 360 camera on the bike. And everything that I said about this was basically proven by the camera. One, like it works really well and it goes off when you're braking and everyone can see it even in broad daylight. It's really obvious. The camera showed that. But the 360 camera also proved how far away people stay from you when you're wearing one of these on your helmets. It's car repellent. I think these are going to start getting shipped to people in September, October, like they've been planning for about six months now. So I don't know. We'll we'll get back with people on these, but Google break free, break free tech or whatever. I still think it's not too late to go ahead and sign up for one at a discount through their Indiegogo page. I think you've got until about September to do that, but these work really well. I'm super stoked to have it. I, you know, with the scene on my helmet and this and the Helite vest that I wear and my zip together suit, I was thinking to myself, like, I am wearing just everything it's possible for a motorcyclist to wear. I'm that guy today. So there we go. That's that. It's a little fun thing I wanted to get into. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the show. We are going to do our regular best worst bike segment. And then we're going to talk with John about motorcycle crash worthiness, which I'm going to be honest, besides you, John, I've never heard of anyone else even broaching the subject. So I'm really excited to talk about this. Yeah, no, I, um, it's I you haven't looked very far, I guess. To, there have been people talking about this, but it was a long time ago. It was probably the early 2000s. Um, I think it was July 2006 in Motorcycle Consumer News when um, Wendy Moon wrote an article about these dangerous designs. And in it, she talked about 1970. Uh, UCLA did a study um, about the dangerous designs of motorcycles and, and how the motorcycle itself can cause injury to the rider. And Excellent assume, point shitting, John. <laughs> yeah. Huh? <laughs> He's a great point shitting. I was like, I've never heard anyone even bring this up. And you're like, well, you didn't look very far. Here's this yeah. person in this cited article. 
Well, and this is a good point for me to say that the reason why I said that was because I don't want to be like the big shot or some big deal. But, um, you know, because and this is a good point for me to say, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. Um, These are just sort of my observations, kind of like, you know, an aha moment. I read an article in 2006 thinking in the next few years I was going to be able to buy any motorcycle I wanted with some pretty neat you know, crash technology on it. And here we are 2019, uh, you know, 13 years later or whatnot. And there's still only one motorcycle with an airbag on it. So, um, that that's kind of just a little forward look at what we're going to talk about, but, um, you know, didn't mean to put you on the spot there. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. So I think what we should do is just roll into it because I'm willing to bet for right now, most of our listeners know who you are since the episode we did with you is Runaway, our most listened to episode so far. Hmm, so that's interesting. Let's jump into our regular best worst bike, give everyone their fix, and then we'll jump right into this crashworthiness with you. What do you say? So let's hit the disclaimer here. All right, so every week we pick two different motorcycles. Here's how it breaks down. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's going to be surprised to be revealed to each other. Now, if you don't like what we've picked, that's okay. It's going to be okay. Just send us an email to contact at nocomoto.com, and we we, we will be your online motorcycle therapist and will help you come to terms with the fact that we shit on your favorite motorcycle or we praised one that you didn't think was all that great. But I'm going to bet that you're going to be okay with it because really, just remember, it's a fun way to talk about two different motorcycles you wouldn't normally take a second look at or that you're not even aware of to begin with. So having said all of that, just remember as a last ditch thing, if you, you still just want to lash out and send us an angry email, remember that there was a study concerning motorcycle safety done in the early 2000s. And if you look it up and scroll and read through some of the abstract on that, it clearly states in the first paragraph, there's no crying in motorcycles. So having said that, let's get right to it. Swiggy, you have worst bike in the world this week, correct? No. Wait, really? I have best bike in the world. Uh, uh no maybe i don't did you prep the wrong thing i may have are you shitting me mm. <laughs> okay is this the first time the rotation's gonna be a little strange uh maybe so let's okay. i don't have a backup so so you just have a great motorcycle i do okay well this is gonna be interesting all right tell you what i'm gonna come up with a solution on the fly here this is going to be an odd week because Swiggy has forgotten which which one he was supposed to prepare, and he's mixed it up, but that's okay. We can do two best bikes, and next week can be ultra fun with two worst bikes. Deal. Okay. You know what? It's amazing that it's taken this long for it to happen. It's true. We, we've had a pretty good track record of this working out. Okay. All right. Okay, so let's just do it this way. So the first best best bike in the world this week is... The 2018 Ninja 636. 
the 2018 Ninja 636. This is the $10,000 one. Yeah, so we haven't done this one. I don't know why. Yeah, we did the 06 Ninja 636, the really iconic one, the 0506 years. But we didn't Yeah, we never talked about this one. So this was the big reveal at the Ame Expo last year. Yes. So I think something that kind of went unnoted is you know, everyone's used to thinking about the the GSXR 750 as kind of being the ultimate dollar per horse, horsepower monster ridiculous hooligan bike. Yeah, squid machine, right. But that hasn't been true for quite a while. If you actually look at the price on a on a Gixxer 600 or a 750 or a 1 liter, they're actually kind of pricey. Yeah, the the Gixxer 600 I was saying a few weeks ago, maybe off mic, is oddly like by a couple hundred dollars the most expensive 600 right now. Yeah. And they don't even beat out the R6s and the R1s in terms of just immediate track readiness. Everyone's still right. going for the Yamahas. Uh-huh. But if you put all the money into it and you get all the, the aftermarket parts, they're kind of the best thing for club racing. Right. Yeah, cost-wise, maybe not. But slowly, Kawasaki, over probably the last 10 years or so, has slowly moved into that position as kind of the not the dollar store king but kind of they are the absolute best value for money if you're looking for a few fancy features and raw horsepower and torque out of the box yes right especially when you look at like the z900 and the what was the other one not the oh the z900 if you're gonna price a bike if you're going to look at the bike spec sheet and compare that to the price it's absolutely unbeatable it falls really short in the fit and finish and i'm telling you those bikes are going to look those bikes are going to age badly like suzuki katanas but out of the box for horsepower i mean there is no better value than a z900 it's just stupid right so this bike is actually a little bit is actually pretty practical as well. It's sitting at 126 horsepower, which overall is not crazy good compared to all the other bikes in the class, but you do get 49 foot-pounds of torque with that. That's got to be towards the top of the class. Well, yeah, like your average, I don't know what the R6s are now, but that's got to be at least a good 15% over an R6. Most of those Something bikes, like that. The, the, especially yeah, when they're, they're low 40s, especially they when they're tuned up for horsepower, they generally sit around low 40s. Yeah. So this is oddly very real world in terms of its performance. And you've still got the six speed gearbox. You still, you get a slipper clutch with it. You've got, you know, a fairly nice dash and it's a fairly modern looking bike. If you're just going to get a super sport, and you just you like sport bikes and you just want to get one like this is kind of it ticks every box it's got the inverted forks it's got the radial mounted brakes it's got the fancy looking swing arm it's got the aerodynamic shapes on the high seat with the 
really small subframe. It's got the little winglet type things on the front. Like you said, you've got some digital dash going on, nothing crazy. It has everything that screams modern performance. I am not on a budget bike. I'm on a new competitive machine. And so even guys that know some things about motorcycles will be like, oh, maybe he's got the latest and greatest, fastest thing ever. There's only one-tenth of a percent of the society that doesn't know that you're on you know, 1,000 horsepower, crazy motorcycle, fast thing, right? You know, all of society, 99.9% of society thinks you're a super fast badass. You've ticked all those boxes with all those people for only $10,000. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. I so have you done like a dollar per horsepower comparison with this and the other other bikes? I have not. Really? So you got the you did a best bike instead of a worst and you did, <laughs> you didn't even do the math. I've never been asked to make any spreadsheets for this podcast, okay? Okay. Right, but when you did that one worst bike with the the crazy custom Harley Cruiser, you talked about how many dollars they spent per mile ridden. I worked at how many cents per foot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, but this is bang for buck, like the cheapest horsepower there is probably. Well, besides a barn find. Okay. For yeah. a new motorcycle. For this, a new motorcycle, yeah. Yeah, I like it. Well, I don't know. The Z900 might technically be cheaper dollar for horsepower, but this is this is a certain look and a certain street credibility to it. Right. I don't know. What do you think, John? I know you're not really a 600 or super sport kind of guy, <coughs> but as as the Zaz of the 600 class has, de- has waned noticeably over the last 10 years, like if you were going to go for one of these... Could you be convinced to go for this one just on the fact that they're all so close and this one's clearly cheaper? Um, yeah, I mean, if I were going to get a, a track bike or if I lived in the middle of the Appalachians or something like that, you know, this would be a good bike to have. It's going to be plenty fast and it's, you know, but we spent, you know, spent a long time on the bike during a day. And I just, again, I sort of kind of turned my eye towards other bikes, you know, that can kind of do that kind of thing. But, but for what I think this bike is built to do, you know, after listening to what you guys were saying, it, it, it's a gem. Right. And I don't, Kawasaki's styling bothers me a bit these days, but this is one that really doesn't bother me so much. This one and the Ninja 400 have a very similar look. I'm only against a lot of their naked bikes with the really weird aggressive bug eye helm um headlights i actually really like all of the fared kawasaki's it's true they they have a certain aggressiveness that i'm okay with i'm still more of like a first gen r6 guy when it comes to super sports i think the the big full fairings and all rounded out is ultimately going to be the look we're all going to return to at some point but i'm okay with this look it's not it's not doing the thing of trying to look overly technical like the z900 is the z900 has parts in it 
there's bits stamped out in the frame and the fairing to make it look like it has more mechanical parts than it actually has. Yeah. I mean, I will say this bike is not as good looking as I think just the straight Ninja 400 is. I I would I still prefer the Ninja 400 compared to this, especially in terms of the graphics game. Hmm. But I don't know. There's there is some weird aesthetic that I'm not convinced all that many people like that the all the super sports and the leader bikes feel they have to play up to. But I would actually say that the 636 does it the least out of all of the super sports. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's I mean it who would have ever thought we would be talking about a super sport motorcycle that's an excellent value for money. It's a contradiction in terms. Exactly. So, it's in rarefied air for me. So, um yeah, I don't have much to add to it. So, we ready to go on to the other one? Let's do it. Okay. So, our other best bike in the world this week. So before I reveal it, I'm going to ask you some questions. What if I told you that in 1985 and 86, you could purchase a motorcycle, which was over a liter, which had four cylinders, which had every option possible for a motorcycle to have, including fuel injection, self-adjusting rear suspension, and you can own one of these with low miles for no more than $2,800 and is still a reliable motorcycle today. What motorcycle would you think I'm talking about? Is this an obscure and unloved BMW K-Bike by any chance? No. Okay. This is the third time in Best Worst Bike we're going to talk about a Goldwing. So. Oh, sorry. You threw me off there because I was thinking, as soon as you said 85, I was thinking chicken tax. Nope. And not Japanese. But you're talking about today's price. So we mentioned that uh, a best bike in the world was the new Goldwing, which is just an untouchable, awesome spaceship from the future that has decided to grace us with its presence. And we talked about how the Goldwing 1500 was a real big miss in a lot of ways. It was a mild improvement at the time, but ultimately not a great machine that was carried on far too long. The Goldwing 1200 was not a significant increase over the 1100. It's kind of like the CB900 to the CB1000. It's really like 33 30 cc's. They boarded out like 33 cc's more or something, so they could call this a 1200 versus an 1100. So it's basically a GL1100. But what the GL1200 really brought to the table was much nicer finish and fit with all the bags and the luggage and the seat and the displays and all of that. It didn't really do anything the 1100 didn't do. It didn't have all that much more power or anything like that. They just refined all the little details. If you compare an 1100 Aspen K to a 1200, 
there are less gaps and the leather's a little bit better and everything works and connects and snaps together a bit better. That's really what the difference was. But in 1985 or 86, they did a Goldwing GL1200LTD. And for whatever reason, on the GL1200 for like 85 and 86, they gave it computerized fuel injection. Okay. So this raised it from having a 94 horsepower at the crank and about 84 at the rear wheel to having about 100 and something at the crank and just a little bit over 90 horsepower at the rear wheel, maintaining somewhere around like 78, 79 foot-pounds of torque, something like that. So this is a motorcycle from 1985 with fairly modern performance. I mean, really, the the this the, the one with fuel injection essentially performed like the flat six GL fifteen hundred. The GL fifteen hundred really didn't have much over this. So today, the blue book on these is absurdly low because it's a motorcycle from nineteen eighty six, and they made a bajillion of them, right? So you can go into a dealership a used dealer and find one of these in pristine condition. And it's difficult to spend more than $3,000 on one. And we're talking about a fuel injected four cylinder, 1200 motorcycle. Now, some people complained that they were getting heavy, but by modern standards for a bagger, not that heavy. The fully loaded out LTD at its biggest got to 770 pounds, which was outrageous for 1986, right? Mm -hmm. But we've all kind of accepted these days that with low down engines and low center of gravity, we can accept weights like that. No problem. I mean, you know, the new gold wings like 700 pounds and everyone's like, yeah, it feels like it's 400 pounds, right? Well, yeah, especially with the, with the flat four, mm-hmm. all that way is going to be super low down. Exactly. So having ridden an 1100, not a 1200, but they're basically the same machine in a lot of ways, I can tell you it doesn't feel 770 pounds. Mm-hmm. So you got the big tank, you got the distance. It's not great with gas mileage, but if you find one of these that's been taken care of, like I said, fuel injection and everything. I, It's hard to tell someone that a bike from the 80s is a great idea right now. But, I mean, yeah, for under three grand in great condition, I, th- these are kind of a compelling buy. I, I mean, you can sort of make the case that even compared to like a 90s inline four bike that's carbureted, you can say, hey, this is fuel injected, and it's a flat four. You've got to take the crash bars off, and you can inspect the valves. Right. Like, it's kind of a very practical thing. I and mean, it's kind of why BMW goes with the flat twin. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the storage on the LTD, and it's the and it's the seat built into it. I mean, this one that you've pulled up here is just a standard interstate. The Aspencade with the extra armrest and the box and the leather bag box armrest things and even more storage. We're talking about Harley Davidson levels of storage here. 
there, there's a lot going on and I can't think of, especially a touring motorcycle from this time that's in any way relevant to today, but especially this fuel injected one, man, I, I don't know. I could see myself pulling the trigger on something like this just, just because it's so cheap and there's so many upsides. W what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. You'll probably need to have the forks rebuilt. Okay. But these engines go forever. We all know that it's been well documented, like buy one with 80,000 miles on it with confidence. If there's some sort of service history or something there, or, you know, sometimes you can just tell from the dude you're buying it from, but now these are old enough that none of them are in the hands of the original owners. This Remember, is yeah, this is the sort of bike where you if you see a Craigslist ad for it, if you go and the bike looks okay and the owner can produce both original keys, you just pull the trigger. Right. Yeah, I was saying the problem with the GL1500 is a huge number of them are still in the hands of the original buyer. <clears throat> And they bought it for some price that really stung their wallets at the time. And they can't get over the fact that it's worth nothing now. Like, I don't care. It's a bike from 1993, dude. I'm not going to give you $6,000 for your Goldwing. It's from 1993, right? But you go back to 1986, none of those guys still have the bikes. They've been sold on to someone else or they're dead and their wife is selling it. It was the most likely scenario. So... People are just unloading these for what they can get for them. And like I said, the blue book is like perfect condition, 3,200. And that's like concourse. There's, they're worth nothing. Except that they're still good bikes if they've been taken care of in any kind of way. And the number of features. And again, we're going to talk about, I, I picked this because again, we're going to talk about special features that make gold wings and their features increasingly relevant all the time you'd think like how 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 for how many years can you just keep packing features onto a bike and make it the leading bike in features well it's been that way since 1986 with computerized fuel injection not mechanical fuel injection not you know something you could map and program and all of that in 1986 on a fucking gold wing that's crazy and and it gave it a, it gave it some power and it was worthwhile having it's now the only downside to the LTD is you could only get it in that super unsatisfying golden tan gold wing paint scheme. You know, the one I'm talking about. Yeah. The one that looks like it has fake wood paneling, even though it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But okay. you're rocking an eighties gold wing. I feel like you can live with some lame paint job, right? There you go. That's I'm, now. Now I'm thinking about it. If you can get it cheap, eighty-five Goldwing with a vaporwave vinyl wrap. I could be convinced. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if the bike doesn't cost that much, and it's not going to be worth that much, regardless of what you do with it. Yeah. Why not? Why not? I mean, there's a lot of body work. You can you can be fairly expressive with that. Uh huh. Yeah, maybe, hmm, okay. This might be somewhat, you could do something with this in the same way that a lot of CB350s and a lot of classic BMWs 
and you know gs 500s and older bikes kind of became that blank canvas for the cafe racer crowd Mm -hmm. to do what they wanted with is there a whole range of 80s bikes they're gonna hit that full like completely absolutely fully depreciated but still rock solid reliable price point where you can pick them up and just do whatever you want with them because you can't depreciate the value on them. Is there a potential for a new custom bike scene? I don't know. I be, Before I finish out on talking about the Goldwing, though, I want to give you a list of a few features that you would just not think were on a machine like this. So standard things for the Aspen Cade model. So there was the air suspension, but like I said, self-adjusting air suspension how that worked i don't know and i can't tell you but i can tell you that this bike purported to have self-adjusting air suspension in 1986 the audio system standard that's the radio and the tape deck all that and later you could replace it with a cd player or whatever wait are we talking cassette yeah okay in 1986, this had an LCD dash. Well, like, okay. LCD, just the letters LCD does not mean what a lot of people think it means today. Well, I it, yes, but that was really... Okay, this is, an, this is a time, this is a year in which an LCD digital watch was like a $500 item. That's true, but 10 years later, they were $5 items. Yes, in 1996, they were $5 items, but this is 1986. This had this. That's pretty flashy. And most motorcycles wouldn't bother doing anything LCD until the late 90s for even just the fuel gauges. Well, yes, but potatoes in England in the 1700s were hot shit. Like... Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, this bike was way ahead of its time. And you would expect just everything to be a manual dial or just an indicator light. And they Mm -hmm. were just thinking ahead to that point with this bike. So other things, of course, there's the CD, uh, the CB radio option, which is infamous. And then, of course, the onboard air compressor standard. Let's not forget about that. That's actually super awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that went back this far. Oh, yeah. All oh, that went back to the 1100. Yeah. On the Aspen oh, really? K, the 1100. Mm-hmm. There was a trip computer on this motorcycle. And uh, a lot of the other things are largely cosmetic and storage-wise that were on this. And I can't remember. I found earlier a version uh, a uh, sorry a um, a conversion and a number to state how many liters of storage it had and i can't remember offhand now but with all the boxes put together it was a lot so i uh, there you go i you know it the the list of, of features from 1986 while some of them like the lcd seem a little bit and the cb radio seem a bit irrelevant today a lot of it still is relevant today. Self-adjusting mm-hmm. air suspension. BMW talks about that all day, every day. Well, BMW's suspension is actually re- 
ridiculously good. Oh, I'm sure it's ridiculously good compared to this. I'm just saying for the gas station talking point, you've got it here. All right. Mm. Have you, have you ridden any gold wings, John? I have not. I really, I know a lot of people. Well, I've known a few people with these bikes. Um, and they're definitely very advanced motorcycles. I think the design is a little, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, maybe even back in the day, it wasn't. It's just really spaceship looking thing. Oh, yeah. But uh, but they're definitely they they wanted to be the most advanced motorcycle on the planet, and maybe other planets as well. But um, so I for, for that I give them. You know, I agree with you. It was it was a great bike. Would I buy one for three grand off Craigslist? Probably not because it's designed for like long distance travel. And, you know, I just don't know if I'd take something from 1985 cross country right now, but well, but it's on on the size front. A lot of people talk about, you know, riding a bike every day and like getting a bike that's too big. But, you know, I, for a while I rode dad's um, Vulcan nomad around, you know, straight for two weeks and the Electroglide as well and the Electroglide. And when you have a big bike, the only time you feel it really is when you pick the bike up off the kickstand and when you set it back down again, if you're riding it well, and you know, it may suck if you're in bumper to bumper traffic and pushing it backwards out of a parking space. Right. But besides that, it doesn't really come into play that much. Yeah, I, I, I you know. I mean, a window, saying. I, I would say you know a lot of times up here, you know, where we live, we're looking for winter bikes, you know, something to ride in the winter. But then that defeats the purpose of this bike. Is you know a good example of motorcycle history. You're saying, and then so I'm just going to get all salt on it and beat the hell out of it in the winter. So, you know, I, it's hard to find a place for it now. But you know, I think you've picked a lot of best bikes in the world this week that that you know in the 1940s or even probably earlier than that. So. You know, it's not something that I think has to be something that you just, to be a good bike, it's got to be one you'd have now. I think it just, you give it the nod that it really was a pretty outstanding motorcycle and leave it at that. I mean, people, you know, the mechanic at the place that I taught motorcycle training for, uh, he had like four of these, you know, at any given moment, two were running and he still rides them probably. So I guess guys who like them, you know, they, they never really park them, but I think that's probably... Like you said, a few few and far between original owners, and you know a lot of guys probably aged out, you know, of riding and everything like that. So I guess if you could find one, take a look at it and fulfill your dream. I just wanted to give one other quick nod to this bike. Um, when they were coming up with this version of the bike, they gave a lot of thought to ease of maintenance as well. So all the service intervals on everything are absurdly long. The oil change interval is long, and you don't. There's no chain at shaft drive. There's you. You were talking about you know to get to the heads is easy. Well, you don't even really have to very much because I believe this has hydraulic self-adjusting valves. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. So it's it's one of the lowest maintenance bikes you can get on top of that, which is another reason they've lasted so long. They're, they're actually pretty easy to maintain. 
the the most pain in the ass thing you're going to do is just replacing lines because you got to get into some of the fairing and poke wires through a lot of body work to replace them. But you know, you replace all the lines on something like this, change the oil, change the 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 fluid in the final drive, and you're kind of just good to go for like fifteen thousand miles. I mean, you don't change the oil, the engine oil in the middle of that, but that's it. So, yeah, I was really glad. It, on that note, compared to what some bikes do today, I was trying to, when I was checking the oil on the Norge yeah. the other day, <clears throat> I thought, oh, well, now I can just, I'll just take all the, the body panels off and I'll actually take the front fairing bit off to get to the actual, um, to get to the oil cover to fill it back up because I noticed that there was some oil coming out. Fortunately, I didn't have to because I had misremembered. And in order to actually take the the fairing off where you can actually get to the oil to put a, a spout in it and fill it up, you have to take off not like the rear side panel piece of fairing. You've got to get off the front side piece of fairing, yeah, which is bolted into the front fairing which is also covered over by the piece of fairing that holds the windscreen. And you really have to undo a good 20 bolts to actually get that piece off. I don't know why it's aimed. It's it's shaped in a way where the hole through the fairing to get to the, the actual indicator and cover is such that there is, I'm convinced there is no funnel you can buy on the market that will fit through both. It's just not possible. Yeah. And then there's this from 1985 where everything's just out in the open. Yeah. And it's easy. It's yeah. Why, why do I keep buying Italian bikes? I know. Right. Yeah. That, that That's another reason this is the best bike in the world. You can just look back and go in 1985. You can't point out any way they could have done it better. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty with so many with so many bikes. We go, why did they do this? Why did they do that? I really can't pick anything apart on this, and that's pretty impressive because we're pretty good at picking stuff apart. So, there we go. Other first, other best bike in the world. We got the GL twelve hundred LTD. So, I think that we're going to call that good. And let's get talking. Let's take a quick break. We'll play our biker gear club spot here, and then we'll come back we are with John. Explorers, adventurers, freedom seekers with a desire to find something more visceral than the road already laid out. Finding new, undiscovered paths through every bend. Getting in touch with a low wolf inside. No longer caged, free to grow with every twist of the wrist. Riding gives us focus. Focus gives us clarity. Clarity directs our attention to what matters most. Biker Gear Club's curated boxes gives you the ability to keep you and your machine primed to go wherever you want all year long. Get your box by subscribing at bikergearclub.com. Come ride with us. We're going places. So now we're going to jump into the meat and potatoes of this one. We're going to talk with our guest, John Del Vecchio, who was on here before to talk about trail breaking in the weaker month that 
every podcast decided they needed to talk about trail breaking. We're talking with John DeBucky about crash worthiness of motorcycles. So we talked with John about trail breaking before, and he told us all about his book, Cornering Confidence. But another seminar or talk that you give, in addition to your courses about cornering safety and techniques, is about motorcycles and their crash worthiness. We all talk about car crash ratings and car safety and even buses and trains and airplanes, but motorcycles are oddly overlooked in this, especially how much we're all familiar with the idea of motorcycle crashes. So do you want to walk us through some basic concepts? Because I think we're probably going to learn some surprising stuff here. Yeah, um, this is... You know, I did give this presentation once, basically, and it's it's on my website at streetskills.net, and you can it's an hour and a half long. And I used to there was a um, BMW dealership in town, and I used to give talks uh, just on reg- regular topics, riding skills, safety, and stuff like that. I was an MSF instructor at the time, and I um, they've since closed shop, but um, this topic just kind of stuck out in my mind is like, I got to talk about this. I got to then record it. I got to put it on YouTube or whatever. And maybe someone will pick up where I left off, you know, with the kind of just to start the fire, you know? And I had a lot of mixed reactions from the people in the crowd. Um, I mean, the things only got like 500 uh, views on YouTube, but it's an hour and a half long. I don't blame people, you know, but I, I tried to pack a lot of information in there. Now, if we, if we just start out, you know, when, when, when anybody listening buys a car, I mean, on a scale of one to 10, how interested do you think they are in the safety rating of the car? These do do days, most people care? Yeah, these days. These days, I think people are less concerned because everyone's aware that the general bar of safety has been raised. Mm-hmm. And we're all aware that it's just packed with safety features. And the general um, occurrence of, of injuries and crashes has just gone down a huge amount. So it's not at the front of people's minds. I remember in the nineties when my parents were buying cars, it was a very big issue. And I think it's dropped off some, you know, I think that's, there's something to be said about that. I taught a a new driver's class tonight uh, before I got on with you guys. And, you know, I told the kids, basically um, I asked them, what's the safest car you can buy. And they kind of say different things. One girl's father saved the 1990s Volvo for you know, and I said, I said, kids, it's, it's the newest car you can buy because every model year they come with, you know, different safety features and whatnot. So we may not say to the salesperson, can I see the safety ratings? Let's go on the internet, you know, cause we kind of, it'll say the five-star, whatever this and that. But do you think that a, a, a consumer for a car would say, well, I guess, can I get it without the airbags in the, in the, um, you know, the different safety features, the roof strength, uh, reinforcement, the side impact airbags and all these things, you know, would, would they ask for that? Not probably not. They would, they would, they would expect that, right. They'd go down the street uh, and buy the safer car. Now, when I talked to the people and I gave them all the things I'm going to talk to you about, we get into this, you know, Q and a at the end. And after everything I said, the people are like, well, you still, you know, you make that choice to get on a motorcycle, you know, and you just uh, you just understand that it's more dangerous. Now, I just got done telling people that there's things that can be done, you know, when they design these motorcycles so that we can take less risk. I mean, I think that if most people um, knew the risk <clears throat> involved 
you know, they'd be a little bit more interested in asking the manufacturers. For example, um, have you ever seen uh, like like tank slope? Right. So we'll get into like the tank slope, but um, that just means like when, you know, right in front of your crotch, where's the tank? Is it nice and gradual up like a cruiser or is it, you know, like a wall? Okay. So that that's a major thing um, that causes problems for people that the the design trends for motorcycles are going more with what we call like these hump shaped tanks. When since the 1970s, we've known that these 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 types of shapes of tanks are disastrous in um, in front end collisions. Now, I guess when we compare, there's there's two real things that we should be concerned with. I think when we buy these products, these motorcycles, there's there's really two things. There's crash prevention, and then there's crash worthiness. Right. So, what's the crash prevention? What 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 types of things can that be? It's going to be ABS. It's going to be in the near future um, lidar for automatic braking. It's going to be you know wider tires with better stopping distances. That's it's going to be the brakes themselves too. Also, to some degree, the maintenance of those brakes and other things. But how good your suspension is to some degree to help you keep mm-hmm. traction. Sure. Yeah, and well, and also it shouldn't be discounted. Just the rider's ability has to play into that some bit. But we're talking about right. the machine itself. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, well, let's talk about the design of the machine. Of course, you know, the rider's proficiency is always going to be there, but um, you know, as a factor. But if if we can take the crash prevention aspect, now I'm more of like the cornering person in my own mind. That's what I like to really focus on. But also in traffic, I, I think that automotive technology may spill into the motorcycle design, but there's a lot of things that haven't so far, which we, which is kind of surprising to me. Like, uh, like motorcycle manufacturers, they don't seem to care about the design of the motorcycle in it's how it can hurt the rider in a, in a forward crash. So I do like the idea of crash prevention with tr- stability control. You guys ever see this GS they got driving like uh, ghost riding? Oh, yeah. The self-driving BMW that yeah. the internet got so angry about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now my thing is what I see when I see that that thing just tooling around a lot of person on it, I, I think, okay, they're trying to build a system that jumps in when the rider error happens, you know, right. sort of like cornering ABS with the IMUs and all these things. And, and it's just like regular ABS. I mean, it shouldn't go on normally for you. If you're using your ABS a lot on your motorcycle, you're, you're, you're out of your league, you know? So same thing with like all these other features for crash prevention, they're going to just be there. And I think that's where the industry is because like right now, the motorcycle manufacturers, they say, you know what, we're going to focus on crash prevention. Okay. And that's, that's awesome. None of us want to go down. And I think that there's, you know, some, some truth that they are making vast improvements in the crash prevention. Now let's switch over to the other, that's let's say in a single vehicle crash in a curve, when someone just screws up the turn, cornering ABS and all these things are going to kind of help you. They're already done a lot of motorcycles, but if we go into the, the multi-vehicle crashes where let's say the left turning vehicle, right. And, and you're going to hit this vehicle. So when we get into a front, a front collision. So I, I don't know. Do you guys have stats? What do you think about like when a car and a motorcycle crash together? 
usually where is the motorcycle making contact with the vehicle? Oh, on the, the side, it's it's a it's a T-bone situation, right? So it's so if we're gonna crash with another vehicle, would you say it's likely gonna be right from the front? No, it's rarely the, head on. It's more often from the side. But I'm saying like, so if a left turning, if a car turns left in front of me, won't I hit it directly? Oh yes. So we're on the same page with that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The bike plows yeah. into it more or less straight. Right. The bike plows into something. It's not like we're going to be going backwards when we hit something. We're not going to be sliding sideways into it. We're typically going straight on into something, right? Yeah. Now, that that's where people, people don't understand what happens. Now, it's not for lack of information. And I kind of, I didn't mean that, you know rip on you at the beginning there. I was just being honest that, you know, there is information there and a lot of people don't really know about it, but you know, motorcycle consumer news is a pretty good size magazine and there's some serious expert right for that. There's actually motorcycle designers more for like aesthetics, on cure, whatever. Um, there's other safety professionals that write for that. Lee parks has written for it. I mean, there's people that are, I guess, plugged into the industry that read motorcycle consumer news. And so in 2006, I was like, wow, this is great. Okay. We let it go in the seventies when people talked about it, but now somebody's going to remember this. And then some time went by, you know, and nothing really happened. And it re it got rekindled in my mind, maybe in 2014, 2015, when I made this, um, this got this idea. And the idea was never to, to be the, um, the authority on this. Like, so when I created what I call the motorcycle crash rating tool, it, it wasn't supposed to be like, I'm the authority on, it was meant to light the fire. Okay. Well, still nothing's happened. <laughs> so we're going to talk now, I guess. Did you guys, um, do you have any questions about anything I said so far? No, it's pretty straightforward. There's, there's objective data on certain types of motorcycle design that are, that's, uh, I hate that I'm about to use this word. It's such a, it's a, such a 2019 word, but problematic. There's problematic designs with motorcycles, and in the name of style, aesthetics, and sales, we're just ignoring that data. Well, I will yeah. say, go ahead. Uh, when you brought this, when you emailed us about this about nine months ago, I did watch your full hour and a half presentation, and I have a lot of suggestions. Go ahead. So, well, I mean, anything pertinent right now? Uh, yeah. Well, I think, you know, you talk about the, the tank slope and how, you know, most people think about a, a front on collision as kind of a Hollywood crash where you're kind of launched up into the air into an arc, but you really go into the fuel tank and mm -hmm. your thighs and your pelvis go into the handlebars and it's all just bad news bears. I feel like there are some things we can do for crash worthiness in terms of not just selecting pre-existing bikes that that already have a profile and a shape and a set of handlebars that are very crash worthy with given designs, but that mm -hmm. there are things we can change about um, how we design and build these bikes where you can have the style of bike you want and have the crash worthiness. For instance, I, yeah, instead totally of having agree. a solid tank, you can have that kind of boy racer, you know, Jixxer 750 high slope tank. But if the tank is a crumple zone instead of a rigid shape, 
you can get some benefit out of that. You could have handlebars that are designed that with a certain amount of force are designed to break away if pushed forward. You can design the amount of flex in the windscreen so that it actually, instead of just being this rigid object you crash into that that messes you up, it's almost the same kind of give and deceleration effect that the EPS foam in your helmet has. Right. Uh, now, we might be getting a little ahead of everybody else because you saw the video. Uh, what I can do is just sort of talk about what I talked about when I spoke just so people listening kind of get an idea of, well, what can happen if I get into a forward crash, you know? Mm -hmm. So what they talk about in these articles is that there's, there's three collisions that happen when you get into a front and crash into something else. It could be a wall, a guardrail, uh, another, uh, an SUV turning in front. So the, the three collisions are, are pretty simple. The motorcycle is going to hit something. Then the rider, this is what people don't really understand. The rider then hits the motorcycle parts. The third collision is the rider getting thrown from the motorcycle and then hitting another object, be it the ground or whatever, right? So if you were to ask most people what happens in a motorcycle crash, just your buddies at the coffee shop that you ride with, a lot of your listeners say, hey, okay, what happens? Oh, oh, the, the motorcycle is going to hit a car. That's going to be bad. And then the, I'm going to get tossed off this bike and boy, I'm going to hit something. That's going to be bad. So I'm, I better get like a Helite vest or wear one of these Liat neck braces like I have or something because I'm going to get, I, wanna, I don't want to get messed up. But very few people realize that they are screwed before they even leave the bike. And there's a lot of different injuries you can get from a motorcycle crash. Specifically, the ones that we need to be concerned with as motorcyclists in the front-end crash. Remember, we're not talking a low side in the corner, stuff like this. We're talking front-end crash into something where the motorcycle stops and we keep going. So we know we're going to get all kinds of different broken bones maybe or bruises or things like that. But it's our pelvis and our brain that are the most vulnerable in that second collision. So when, when we're, the motorcycle stops, we keep going we get hung up on things. Most importantly, we get hung up on the tank if it's really sloped. So imagine your, your, bite, your, your body getting pinned to it, right? So when it comes to the pelvis, uh, I guess I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical person, but what I read in the articles was that if you mess up your pelvis and get brought to the emergency room, the level up the ladder that they have to treat you for injuries, it just, your whole body goes into this like ridiculous, just um, a fight mode. You know what I mean? Where if we can protect the pelvis, we're going to be, we're going to be better off. And so the tank slope directly impacts the severity of your pelvis damage. Okay. So if we have a slope tank, like your typical, um, you know, Harley Davidson sportster, you know, yeah, people, I guess you can catch your, I guess the, um, the cap on the, the gas cap sticks out. So that can be a problem. Um, obviously you can see what would slide up there, but not only your, your, your arms can get stuck on things. Your legs can get stuck on different things. Now I want you to think about, so your pelvis, let's say I get pushed forward, right? Into the, into the tank. Now, while I'm pinned, my, my brain is still moving in my skull. Right. So now that's going to be bouncing back and forth in there. So people, before they leave the motorcycle, I mean, their body moves 
two inches forward. And now they have potential brain injuries and a pelvis injury, right? Yeah. So that, so that's, I guess that's the biggest thing, you know, if I could boil everything down, it's like, like you said, Swiggy with the, you know, collapsible tanks and things like that. Anything that we can do to reduce that front impact force in that second collision, when we hit the motorcycle is going to be, you know, is going to help us, you know, like we talked about ABS, that's going to slow the bike down quick, better tires, better suspension. All that's great. They even said spoke rims are going to absorb energy. Um, but the tank slope, you know, one of the things in the article, it says, when you read this, you'll never look at motorcycles the same way again. And it's true. I can't look at a motorcycle with a hump tank like that. Um, that 636 you were talking about, uh, just as best bike of the week. And I look at that tank and I say, it's a good thing it's a track bike or something because people are doing low sides, high sides, even better than running into a car straight on, you know? So that's the big thing that we want to start with is this, the tank slope. Oh yeah. My super Hawk's terrible about this. Probably the worst bike of all time for tank slope would be the Ducati SS 800 and SS 900. If you, if you Google that pretty quick, John, you're going to go, holy shit. Were they trying to hurt people? <laughs> yeah. It's flat wall, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it just goes straight up to your chest. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I did a whole, I did an article, I wrote an article for some magazine, it was like a East Coast sort of local magazine up the East Coast, it was kind of like one of these free magazines you could pick up at the dealership, yeah. and I went to my local dealership, and I started taking pictures of um, the different slope, the different tank slopes, and I know you guys are into British bikes, you like these Triumphs, but have you ever seen the, the, the uh, Tiger Explorer's tank slope? I have. Yeah. The, it goes up to your, it goes up to like your, your, your solar, your, your, um, like your, your the middle of your chest. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. and, and, and the thing I think about, like, how about that? Remember the, you know, the alligator that that guy made, uh, gurney or something. He made that thing. You, oh, lay, you kind of yeah. sit in that, like, it's like a yeah. recumbent motorcycle. Yeah. And I look at that and I just say, you getting a forward crash on that, man, you are getting split in two. You know, and, and it, it's just one of the things that I think about, you know, now, do I still ride bikes that have some slope? Well, yeah. I mean, we want to ride the motorcycles we want. And so it puts us in a position of, you know, you know, one of the things that, that I talked about on this thing was the trend is going the other way. Like, you know, the, um, like the Duke, not the super Duke, um, the original Duke was like from 2005. It was like the supermoto thing. Yeah. And it had like that really flat dirt bike seat almost, you know, mm -hmm. and then the 2010 came out and I just loved it because it was, again, there's no tank. It's flat. Well, what did they do when they made the 2015? They, they took a nice flat profile and they put a hump in it. Yeah. Right. They did this. They did the same thing with the adventure. Right. So the, the KTM adventure, if you remember that the really, uh, Dakar rally looking model from like the, you know, 2008 or whatnot, very nice slope. But then the 2015, they added slope to it because I don't know if it's they want to put fuel in it, if they think it's what people want. But I think that of all the information presented, the tank slope is the one that, you know, is a real problem because it could just it could just mess us up so bad. Now, there are solutions. You know, do, do you guys what do you think of the airbag on the motorcycle? I think it's an underused idea. So people think, well, well, you you could use that in a Goldwing because 
you've got this great big fairing in front of you. Sure, you know, you can you can fit it in there. But I don't think a lot of people are aware of how little space an airbag really takes up. If you look at your steering wheel, I think not every motorcycle, but a large amount of unfaired motorcycles have space for an airbag unit box you know behind the behind the panels of the instruments and things i think there's room in there to incorporate it and especially now that tanks aren't really gas tanks anymore right. and it's yeah. just a plastic thing below it doesn't have to be in front of the handlebars it can just be in front of you next to where you fill it with gas and it just comes up straight up and people are aware of this idea of a airbag that comes out as sort of a pillow in front of you in your car, but airbags can inflate to be all kinds of different shapes and they do it very quickly. So you can have an airbag that does maybe nothing but kind of slope your the way you're going to advance. It's not going to stop you mm-hmm. from moving forwards, but it can sort of give you a trajectory over the windscreen and possibly over the hood or even the roof of the car in front of you. If, if, if I know we have 90 minutes on that video, I told you it's an hour and a half long on my website. Right. But, um, if people go right to like around the 30th minute, you know, minute 30 or whatever, you can even just search Google for the comparison of the gold wing T-boning your car with and without an airbag. You know, it's it's just remarkable the difference, the, what it does to diffuse the energy, protects your crotch. Okay, it does it does so much, and people are like, "Ah, you're on a motorcycle, all you need an airbag for." But you, if you can put that puff of air between you and the object, the car, but also your motorcycle. See, you could have a you could have a slope tank all you want, have that Ducati all you want with a you know ninety degree tank. But if an airbag were to come out, let's say it came out of the seat or it popped out of your vest or something, and it prevented you from hitting that, you see, then we, we could do the same thing. Um, and again, the, um, the, the Goldwing, I found this one video where it's just, it's just showing like a, a computer-generated image of a Goldwing hitting from different angles and the, and the airbag going off and all these different scenarios. And, you know, one of the things about the airbag vests I was, you know, excited like everybody else when 10 years we started seeing these things come out. And, and I don't want to knock the Helite in, in these other vests because remember that third hit, that third collision when you get tossed? Yeah. That is, you're going to want that, right? So that's going to prevent injury. Now, your Helite vest and others like it, they're kind of at a disadvantage for the second hit. When you hit the part of your motorcycle, you don't want to hit. You slide into the tank, you cut, hung up on the you know, handlebars, whatever it is. Um. Even your head coming down in your face shield hitting the windshield could be a devastating thing, okay? So the, the Helite, as great as these things are, my, my Liat neck brace, they're really built for the third collision. You're thrown clear, right? I agree. So, so now, one of the things I suggested is, like, somebody should make an airbag vest, right, that only pushes forward, before, you know, and it, it happens fast enough that, you know, before you hit the, it can kind of be like, you don't have to install it on your bike. It's just, you wear it in front and all the CO2 air blows it forward to, to help you in that second collision, hitting your bike and that kind of stuff and diffusing the energy, you know, but 
uh, you know, people people were very skeptical when I gave this talk at the at the BMW dealer. They were like, "You're never going to get past the lawyers," and there's so many different you know parameters. And I'm saying, look, you're right. Okay, I'm not the engineer here, but but my God, we're building amazing machinery these days. We're making amazing vehicles. You're yeah. telling me we can't figure this out, you know? Um, so it's well, just, I, I don't my, understand the, the lawyers not allowing you to put some sort of airbag on a motorcycle it, because uh, there are moments and there's sort of a, a discussion amongst some alarmists right now where given how safe cars are compared to how they used to be, some people wonder, well, is motorcycling just too dangerous period for people to accept moving forwards, which is a little bit odd because yes, there is risk, but you know, it's never been safer than it is right now. Certainly right. with, with the, with the kinds of gear that we have now, we're seeing a reduction in some of the injuries. It's still high. Sure. But we're seeing a reduction. We're on our way there. The crash avoidance, all this stuff. It's it's moving. It's moving slow, but it's moving in a good direction. Now, but still, we all remember that feeling of getting on a motorcycle for the first time and thinking to ourselves, "How is this fucking legal?" Right? Oh yeah. I'm just on this machine out here in the open. I've never done this before. I've always been in the safety of a car. And when you feel all the wind and everything the first time, you're like, people yeah. allow this to happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's so, crazy, isn't it? <laughs> given given that and how, as we're talking about, so the design of some motorcycles is very poor for people crashing, it, on what grounds could someone deny you putting an airbag system into a motorcycle on the grounds that it could injure someone? It's this is America, and you know, the lawyer ads on TV are just you know because it wasn't installed properly. If it would have been installed, I mean, I'm not like I'm not beating up the lawyers or the system. I'm just saying these were some of the things that people said. Now, what I told them was, I go now one of the motorcycles that I use as an example is the Honda NC700X. Now, yep. this is this is the motorcycle version of the Honda NC700 Integra scooter. Okay. Yeah. So it's the same chassis, but instead of instead of putting an airbag where the fuel tank would be, they put like a storage container for your helmet. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and it, it drove me nuts because I'm thinking to myself, geez, they got a warehouse full of these freaking airbags, you know, for the for the Goldwing. Um, why not be the company? Now I, I think it's a it'd be a ballsy move for these people to say, look. We're hurting you when you crash into us. You're going to crash into something, and it's our product that's causing you more bodily damage. So if we admit that, that's going to be a horrible thing, I think, for the motorcycle manufacturers. So they just keep designing. Oh, they like really hump tanks? Great. Let's give them a nice hump tank. You, you see what I mean? Because that's what they want to buy that looks good to them. Um, I mean, you, you can look at any, like, look at the Hyper Motard, right? It's a pretty sexy bike, isn't it? Oh, of course. So that's got as sloped a tank as you can get. You're not hitting your groin and your pelvis on that tank. It just isn't going to happen. There's no tank there, but it's still a sexy bike. So, you know, you know, we can, we don't even know we want to ask for these things because people are like, well, I guess I'm going to be pretty fucked up if I get in a crash. You know what I mean? But people don't realize that it's going to be way worse if they're on a different motorcycle, I guess is what I'm saying. 
according so, to the research. So I got a few things to say towards that. One is I am always in favor of people being allowed to make horrible decisions, but also must acknowledge that they are horrible, horrible decisions. So no matter how stupid your motorcycle is, I think you should always be able to ride it. But I am very much in favor of people being able of people also having the, the consumer information to be able to make good decisions. Yeah. So I think if we're going to start anywhere here in terms of just not even necessarily making motorcycles safer, but making people aware of what decisions they are making, there needs to be some sort of classification system. It doesn't have to be a legal requirement. It just has to be something that companies subscribe to. Because you know Honda will just have to jump on it. Yeah, like could Snell take some of the data of motorcycles in head-on collisions and just give them a one-to-five star rating? Just say, hey, we're, we're not talking about how much people were hurt in these accidents. We're talking about how much people were hurt by the bikes in these accidents. You know, and you and someone could tell you, well, this Goldwing is two stars. With the airbag, it, it should be like eight. But yeah, you know, here we go. Here's the difference. Because I can't imagine buying a Goldwing without the freaking airbag. Not to it's mention like two grand. Well, yeah, it is two grand, but we're talking about a motorcycle that starts at twenty three anyway. Right. I and and let and, and let, let's let's put this in perspective too. This is the motorcycle that's famous for having an airbag, right? Even people who don't ride are like, don't those things even have airbags? <laughs> Could you buy a Goldwing <laughs> and then like ride it to your friend's house? And he's like, it's a Goldwing. Does it have the airbag? And yeah. then you have to look him in the eyes and say, no, it doesn't. Come on. It's worth the $2,000 just so you can look your buddy in the eye and be like, yeah, it's got the freaking airbag, right? You're already, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's less than 10% of the base model cost. You well, kind of, let's you just have say, to at that point. Yeah, you really have Co- to. Cost aside, cost aside, okay? Um, I just think that people don't, it's kind of like they don't understand what's happening here. Just, just to give you some, you know, to think about this vulnerability of the pelvis, right? At 10 miles an hour, right, the the impact is like uh, falling from a ladder, okay? Yeah. At 20 miles an hour, it's like falling from a one-story building. And at 30 miles an hour, it's like falling from a three-story building. So if you go into that intersection, let's say, God forbid, at 30 miles an hour, and you hit that, someone turns left in front of you, and you hit that tank at, you know, at 30 miles an hour, that is like a jump down, a, you know, into your pelvis from a three-story building, you know? So I, I think that people people just don't think, well, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to crash. No one's going to cut in front of me, this and that. And um, so it's hard to get people. I think a lot of people ride motorcycles because it is risky. It is, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the real wild guy. You're the, you're the guy that's, that's, you know, we want to be cool like you because you don't, you don't care. You just want to be out there in the wind, you know? And I think people are like, so yeah, screw the airbag because I don't ride to be safe. I don't think that's true. I think there is a, there's a very, there's a, 
how to put this there there is an area that people are uncomfortable in when this conversation comes up which is you know we used to ride back in the day it, we never wore helmets we didn't give a shit we just did it and that was okay now we grew up we got kids we got to look out for ourselves you know now we've got a life insurance policy everything's getting a little bit too real so okay we're going to get the ECE or the snow rated helmet we're going to get the jacket we're going to get the pants with the hip armor and the shoulder protection the back protector and everything and now the safety element is coming up one more notch where we're saying potentially even the bike I'm riding may just be totally unsafe. And I think there's more a fear that, oh, this, you know what? Just pack up shop, hang up the helmet, we're done here. Yeah. I think there's there's a fear that the safety talk is going one level too high and that the whole thing needs to get shut down and we're getting close yeah. to that threshold. I think that's the fear that's happening here. And that's where the resistance is coming from. I, I see that. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you all, you also can't buy a motorcycle with an airbag. You can't buy a motorcycle with a crumple zone tank. You know, you can't buy a motorcycle, you know, that, that deflects the front wheel to one side when it gets in a front end crash. One of the things I didn't mention earlier is that first hit, you know, when the motorcycle hits the car or whatnot, there's one shock to your brain, but then when the tire backs into the motor, it's a second hit. So we have our brain going flip, flop, flip, flop. They, they have a special name for it where your brain goes forward, backwards several times. This happens in like an instant. So, you know, I thought, well, they could put a wedge or something that in a front end crash, when the forks collapse, it just shuns it to one side. You see what I mean? So it doesn't take the second hit. You know, I mean, these are things that they, that they documented as problems in this research. I mean, and it's a guy who does like the, the research that they, the guy who um, she based the thing off of, he's like in California and he does like accident reconstruction um, ex, expert witness things. And he, I mean, he's a scientist, you know, it's not like it's just this, this, this motorcycle coach in New York state that says we should do these things. You know, it's there, it's coming from reliable sources yeah because all you'd have to do is reinforce one of the forks you know make sure. the other one totally up to standard it will it will withstand all forces from regular use but in the unnatural situation of being smashed into a car one fork will just give out before the other and then the wheel goes to one side that's a really easy one to do well right. it gets so, a little now, bit, it gets a little bit sketchier just there because um the worst concussions are actually lateral. So, I mean, I think there's other things you can do, and I think you can even have forks that are crash-worthiness rated where even after they go, even after they would normally bottom out, there's some sort of crumple zone in there that you can make that happen. But I think in what, all what of this, I think, yeah, go ahead. I think in all of this ahead. conversation, I think as soon as there's a governing body that can actually measure crashworthiness for different angles and different different ways that motorcycles can crash, you've just got to be able to pick out the worst ones and put them on blast. And then you can start making changes. And I think there's some other things as well. Um, for example, I I cannot remember what the acronym is for 
the the motorcycle safety group, like uh, industry safety group, they just founded after last year's aim. Oh yeah, like all the major manufacturers said, we're going to make a commitment to safety, and we'll make this group. We got right. a newsletter about it on the email. I can't right. remember. So, I think one idea I had a while ago was rather than just saying every motorcycle has to be, you know, immediately up to all of these different crashworthiness ratings, one of the things they can do is sort of outsource the safety. In that, all of these advanced motorcycles now have. An, I, an ECU and an IMU that tells you how fast the bike is going, how much fuel it's taking in. It's got the IMU that's telling you what the lean angles are, you know, yeah, what the, with a gyroscope and everything. And what you can end up doing is you could say, okay, you don't all have to implement all of these premium safety features right away. But what we're going to say is we're going to create a spec for IMUs that every new motorcycle over a certain price point or at a certain, for whatever uh, criteria they want to make it, the motorcycle has to have a port out of it. The, the IMU has to have a port out of it that you can plug any any safety device into and that cable just puts out a 5-volt signal the millisecond that the motorcycle detects a crash. And then you can do whatever you want. That could be for like a tank-mounted airbag. That could be for an airbag vest. You might even have a more advanced feature where you say, this needs to output a signal for the initial collision as soon as the motorcycle detects it. And then it needs to also detect when the motorcyclist is flung free so that it can have you know, a tank-based airbag for the first collision, for the second collision, and then separately trigger the vest when the motorcyclist gets flung free. <coughs> and then any third-party company that doesn't make ma- motorcycles can say, hey, we've got this crazy idea for a new vest. We're going to put this product out on the market, and they can do it. Yeah, the... the um, so the... International Journal of Crashworthiness, yeah, Volume Ten, Two Thousand Five, Issue Four. Here, this uh, this this study that I found online, done back in two thousand five, uh, found that most of these problems are significantly helped by airbags as part of the motorcycle, whether it be scooters. Because, you know, if we're, we're talking about these things like, you know, motorcycles have a wall in front of you, right? What could seem worse than that than a step-through scooter, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people in the world that ride vehicles like this. And they get hung up on these scooters and they do a lot of damage. These 50cc scooters will do 25, 30 miles an hour. As John said, it's like falling off a three-story building. And the study found that these things are very much helped by airbags, like one size fits all airbags that they fit to all these different, all these different scooters and did all these different crash scenarios. It's an effective thing. And I don't think, I think you're on the right track. The answer is we can have motorcycles built in a majority of ways a majority of styles. And we don't need to compromise them so much, but the front impact airbag 
is a significant thing. And it can be built into the seat. It can be built into extra space under the tank. It can be built behind the bars. There's all sorts of different places to stick it. Or it can be an aftermarket add-on feature. But it does need to be something that's pushed a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit more. And it doesn't matter what kind of bike you have. I think there is a one-size-fits-all option that's pretty good for for most people will significantly help them. I don't think something that you wear is the answer. As John said, like our Helite vests are great for the third crash. And it's not like they're necessarily terrible for this second crash concept, but as fast as they go off, less than a fifth of a second, well, that's still enough time for you to hit part of the bike. You're mm-hmm. until you leave the space of the bike, you're basically still traveling at the same speed the bike was traveling. So 60 miles an hour, that's how many feet per second? I can't remember. It's a lot. It's like, like 90 feet, 90 feet per second. Yeah. I was going to guess 80. Yeah. 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 It's well, it's, it's 1.5 roughly times the speed feet, feet per second, roughly. Right. So it's a it's fast. It's about eighty eight. It's exactly eighty eight feet per second, I think. But okay, there we go. So yeah. right, <laughs> roughly ninety. Yeah. So as fast as your yeah, and they say like, well, that's why you got to have the digital stuff. That's you know, people will be like, well, the helite stuff is useless because uh, it doesn't inflate fast enough because mm-hmm. that point one eight seconds or whatever. You need the digital stuff that goes off in like point one two seconds. In the point one two seconds, you've still hit the bike. Sure, I will just because of how egregiously off you were. I will correct you. It's not one point eight seconds. It's point oh eight seconds. Whatever it, it, you know what I mean. Not oh. whatever. <laughs> So, so that, two orders so that, of magnitude off. It's true. It happens fast, but that difference between the digital stuff from Alpine Stars going off and ours with the tethers, there is a difference. I mean, they, the vests inflate just as fast, but the right. trigger for when they go off is a little bit quicker on well, the Alpine Stars. That's stuff. true, but to to go back to what John was talking about before with the the tank slope and the handlebars. How fast they go off doesn't really matter for a front-end collision in that, first of all, most of those vests don't extend down to your pelvis, which is going to get fucked up. No, that's what I'm saying. Secondly, Wearing something doesn't help. You need the airbag built into the bike. Right. And it's not even, it's not even when it goes off. It's when you get hung up on the bike, the lateral forces that get applied to your head when your lower body gets stuck on the bike are not affected by any of that. Right. Because yeah, as, as I was saying, as fast as this stuff goes off, only the airbag coming from the bike can detect the crash. The exact moment it happens, not the moment your body twitches or you get separated four inches from your seat and your heat light tether sets it off that moment. It gets triggered. So you're good there, but it's also an airbag that can be triggered extending out from the problem area of the bike rather than you trying to get some air expanding around you before you get to the problem area, right? The Mm -hmm. airbag comes from the source of the problem. So you have the best possible chance. That's why the built-in airbag on the bike is really the only one that's an answer to the issue. 
And well, is it a big deal to have a $2,000 airbag for the bike that you think looks fucking rad? I don't think it is. No, if you could get an aftermarket type of thing. You know, I had some entrepreneur ideas. You know, now there, we can, we know that there's this problem, right? So right now nothing's being done. Nothing. Zero. I've never heard anybody talk about any crash worthiness built into the motorcycle. Okay. Except so for the any, Goldwing. Except for the Goldwing's. Uh, airbag. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so it's good. It's, so do we want to see the government getting involved? First of all, I think the government screws things up. Um, but they're, they clearly don't care the government right now to mandate these types of things. They're busy with cars and you know other types of things. Right. So I think we have an entrepreneurial sort of avenue here. And that's where like, you know, the everyday man, the every man or whatever, listen to your podcast, you know, and even the, you know, the big deals listening, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there. I mean, I almost think too, like you could have something come out from the seat okay, as an airbag or like even think about a functional tank bag, you know, that actually has an airbag built into it. Yeah. And yes, mm -hmm. it, it might, not, it, it might not be tethered to the bike, but remember, all we really want to do is inflate that, that puff of air between us and that object. Yeah. So it's if like we get, you're, yeah, it's like you're running towards a brick wall. And you just, your friend is just throwing a beach ball bet in between you and the brick wall before you hit it. That's really all you're aiming for. Yeah, that's right. And let's just say, let's just say that like the beach ball works 50% of the time or 70% of the time or 25% of the time, you know, just because of the angles or things like that. Better that than no be, beach ball. It, that's yeah. what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's still because what we want to have happen is we want to throw, this sounds odd. But this is the solution, right? If we get in a front crash, we want to be thrown clear of the motorcycle as cleanly as possible. We don't want to run into the motorcycle. It's not like your seatbelt in a car and an airbag is going to keep you in the car and you're, you want to be in the car nice and safe. We need to just get cleared freely, cleanly from the motorcycle uh, itself. And, and if you watch the airbag of the Goldwing on uh, the, the video that I have, uh, you can find on the internet as well, as I said before, you watch and the person just goes right into the side of that car and they're just, their head bends back. It's just disgusting. And then when the airbag comes off, it shoots them up and you can actually see the energy diffusion, their, their, their hips and everything are staying in the right place. You know, and it's just, it's what I'd want between me and, and that bike. For, for the people that think that this might be a bunch of talk about people who are, you know, from people who are overly concerned about safety, I want to remind everyone the head on collision is the collision that even the best riders you know will get into. It's the one that comes with zero warning. It's, I'm riding, I'm still checking my zones, I'm checking for problems i'm scanning and here comes a speeding car from someone high on meth through an intersection boom head-on collision it, this is the one that is often you know the the freak of nature act of god crash no Isn't one that what killed nikki hayden on a bicycle uh, yeah it's it, this is the crash that you won't see coming right no matter how good you are I mean, yeah, you can be it, really it shitty and start. be more more at risk for this kind of thing because you don't check intersections as you're entering them. But even when you're checking, 
intersections when you come at them. You never know if someone just comes flying through an intersection speeding just because they're high on meth. I, you know, well, it may, yeah, it you, may you be guys, you, you're looking at a guy, you know, it may be you're pulling onto a road and you see somebody about to turn across you and you make eye contact with them and they're completely spaced out and actually just turn in front of you. You may have made every confirmation that everything was okay and you're still screwed. That's where this crash happens. So wouldn't it be nice to have that airbag to cover you a little bit more for that? That's what we're talking about. And it's tragic that it happens, but it does happen. But weirdly, no one cares about it. And John, you're one of the only people that's yeah, people have done studies about it. You know, you said it doesn't look very far, but who else has, yeah, you, other people have come up with this information, but beyond you and now us, who else is trying to present it to the public? Like, it, it really? Yeah, there are studies yeah. you can look up, but they're not put out there as, hey, this is a thing on YouTube or a podcast you should listen well, to or printed in a major publication and you should read it. No one else has put this information in front of people. Unless you're actively looking for it, the only other the only other angle on this kind on this level of safety is actually helite. I guess so, yeah. I I if you're unless you're actively digging for it. I mean, yes, there are a lot of these articles and there are there are papers on it and all sorts. But in terms of general public awareness, this is this is kind of underground. Yeah. And it's not there, imaginary. Okay, now there is one person that I've so I, I'm not gonna name the people that haven't really cared too much for in the industry, but I have, you know, one of the persons that I talked to this about, you know, you'd know his name if I said it up to bring the guy's name up but you know his thing was like look the motorcycles that you're saying we should build don't sound like much fun to ride you know now i simply i talked to him a second time about you know it seemed like he was agreeing with me and and so we i don't know where he stands on you know the issue now because we talked about you know keeping people safe and alive well wouldn't an airbag do that so i don't get a lot of feedback from people that see someone who knows people who is connected to the industry, they might be able to get this thing moving. Now there's uh, a guy by the name of Dan Peterson. Um, he runs this thing called uh, skilled motorcyclist association, responsible trained educator riders, Inc. It spells smarter. It spells smarter. Uh, and it's smarter hyphen USA.org. And if you go to research this guy, um, when Michigan repealed their helmet law, him and some other people got together and put this, you know, alternative safety uh organization together this guy uh, and some people and i've kept in contact with him over the years now um over if you go to his website that's smarter-usa.org go to research under design and equipment he does have he went very detailed extremely detailed anything you want to know about what i've just talked about tonight and because he took it he picked it up where i left off sort of and he's connected to like industry, you know, insiders and things because of his stature with this organization. But yet he's getting no traction, you know, because nobody wants to talk about, it, you know, so well, we're stuck picking. I reject yeah. the idea that the bikes would be no fun because if you described everything that's involved with safety on a car today to someone in 1968, 
you know, the higher than muscle car, car era and everything, they'd go, who wants to drive that car? And it turns yeah. out, well, I don't know, a new Dodge Hellcat. Yeah, it's orders of magnitude safer and faster and more thrilling than some old piece of shit muscle car. Well, here's the other thing. Everything that everything that we've discussed about safety, aside from maybe at the absolute worst, an extra 15 pounds of material to add a front airbag, a tank airbag, to put a vest on you, to run a cable for sensors, to trigger off different airbags. Like, what are we actually talking about to change the design? Is the fact that you've swapped out your metal high-angled tank for a crumple zone tank made of plastic with some bend in it and an airbag that goes off, is that completely destroying your riding experience you know it's interesting you say that i don't think so yeah because because as we're because you're right they're the designers right they're the engineers you can hide these airbags like you guys know like on a sport touring machine next to the tank you got like those um kind of the fairing comes around and you can like lockable storage and things yeah i mean put the put an arched shaped airbag in there like no one would even know it's there yeah, you know, and I'm, oh, I'm fairings just are that, filled with all kinds of empty space as it is. Sure, right. So, so we're thinking we're thinking the Goldwing airbag as this one big huge puff of air that comes out. But again, there's smart people in the world. There's smart designers. There's entrepreneurs and things like that. It could be three Maybe smaller airbags. Exactly. Yeah. I'm even thinking of things like um, if you think about a modern super sport where you've got a big air scoop on the front for the air intake, you could have LIDAR sensors that, you know, BMW has already put on their self-driving motorcycle, and that's going to detect when a crash goes off. You could actually create a motorcycle that could detect when a crash was going to happen, start braking, determine that the crash was always going to happen, that was already going to happen, and actually deploy airbags at, like, flooded out of the air intake that were like mounted on the sides inside oh and then deploy before it hit you could have that external airbag and it would cost you nothing in terms of styling in terms of design exactly it would just be better all around and i, I can think- i can do you one better if you're buying a super sport or leader bike style bike okay you could buy it in the race ready trim and it's just a tank, and it's all set up for the track, and there's nothing. Or you could buy another version of it where the tank holds maybe a tiny bit less gas, but that arch bit, that problem area of the tank, that is the airbag. The problem area of the tank is where the airbag is, and you're killing two birds with one stone. Mm Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of different ways. And the only difference between the two models is which tank cover is on there. Sure. Because it's not actually the tank. The tank is a plastic thing like that's really more like by your ball sack than it is up where that looks like it's a tank. That's all air box, right? You could have a road-going version that has a slightly smaller, less performance air box. It's still 
orders of magnitude more power that this airbox giving you than you need on the street. And instead, in that zone, you have the airbag. Let's also keep in mind that once you put all this technology together that's required to do this, once you mass market it and you put it on everything, yeah. it's cheap. This is also it gets well, cheaper, but it's also only a few steps removed and a couple servo motors on your throttle and your clutch and your handlebars away from having a self-valeting motorcycle. What do you think yeah. of this idea, right? What do you think of this? So, you know, I'm just sitting here looking at my pictures and things like that. So think about think about this design, right? This is a simple mechanical device. When the forks collapse, some mechanical device just springs the seat up. So oh, you like an ejector seat? Yeah. Oh, so you can actually have a Hollywood crash that <laughs> yeah. launches you clear? <laughs> My, my my point is that like what, what would you rather do get thrown clear and take your chances with a helite vest yes that yes. is what i would rather Absolutely. do <laughs> yeah. right so so now we're on so so that would be just mechanically it's gonna push some lever that springs you in that instant that it collapses and that that's yeah that would cost money and it wouldn't, it'd be proprietary to each different, you know, a specific model. You probably couldn't do that, like, with just, but a seat manufacturer like Corbin could do something so like I don't, that. So one thing I will say is I don't think, and this is from some very, very naive engineering understanding, but I don't think you could have it, like, spring-loaded. No, but it would have but to, like a wedge-type design or something. It would have to be, like, a wedge-type design where the way that the frame crumpled would lever the the subframe up to launch you. See but, now that you're talking, right? So that the crumple the crumple of the of the frame yeah would divert energy just, up to. But but end. that's the problem. Like one of the things the person said was that like the frames right. So the the, the crash. I'm cool with says, putting explosives in the monoshock, and when it senses a crash, <laughs> you're just sent going. Yeah, because you're wearing a helite. You know, you could be dropped from a freaking 747. Oh yeah, for real. Like if you gave me mm. the option of with my helite vest, my armored jacket, my back protector, my helmet, my gloves, my armored pants, my boots, of just jumping off a two and a half three story building, or just a random crash of unknown circumstances. I'll jump off the building like yeah. every time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just the sudden stop is going to get you one way or another. It's just, we, we, I just, you know, I know people that have gotten in front of collisions and they walk, you know, they walk a little different after, you know, immediately after. And, you know, I know there's female riders out there too, but you know, I mean, the males, you know, this is a real, you know, dangerous thing for everybody. But once it gets to your pelvis, um, you know, you're, you're just in the pain isn't, isn't really the most, the issue. It's just what it does to the inside of you. Um, there's so many organs. If you think about, they call it like this basket, your pelvis. Okay. And just, it holds so many important things in our body, you know, and, and to, and to think that we get behind these tanks and if you look at the trends over time, didn't used to be like that. Like your dad's CB750. Yeah. Well, it's it's also... It's a low tank. You know, people think about a broken pelvis and they go, oh, that doesn't sound very good. But in reality, a broken pelvis is up there with a spinal cord injury and a fractured skull in terms of 
getting you away from a crash scene alive oh stable, absolutely it's it's number three right there behind spinal yeah. cord it's and one of those injuries fracture. that's not it's almost impossible in nature. Like you can't run fast enough to right. break your pelvis, right? Like exactly. you know, you can like your cavemen kind of would like break their arms and then just kind of you know heal them like crooked or whatever, right? But you can't really like break. You can't run fast enough into something to break your pelvis. It's it's, it's something that yeah. nature is absolutely not prepared for. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and thank God most of us don't have to endure this type of injury, right? So very few people mm-hmm. I know have been in I mean, I do know people I will people actually that say, uh, just, I, sorry to interrupt you, but no, for everyone ahead. who is not convinced about this, go, just, just Google with safe search turned off and look up pelvis injuries and look for the hospital photos of people mm. after they've come oh. out of the ER because... What you're going to find is photos of people with basically these giant rigs set up around their hospital bed, and you're going to see screws going through their flesh into their pelvis, holding it all together. Like, it is... I I, I can't even think of a way to describe it. It's basically using screws... For what's really a duct tape and rubber bands job. Like, it's an absolute disaster. Like, you don't want it. I I wouldn't want to deal with that. And, and, you know, I think that, like, if someone, think about this. Somebody gets in the front and crash. Like, they break their pelvis. They're messed up. They got to stop riding. Okay, their life's changed forever because of these internal injuries. And they probably will not trace back directly that injury is a result because they had to have a, a high hump tank bike. You know, they're going to be like, yeah, man, I crashed and I got injured. You know, I don't really think that the, the doctor's saying, yeah, you know, if you were on the slope tank, yeah, you'd probably be okay. You know, but, but no, you were on that, you know, that multi-strata, which by the way, I love the multi-strata, but it, I want you to look at the slope. The seat rides up the tank. Well, you know, we, and, we, we do a lot of talking here about the tank and everything. Uh, it, it goes without saying that ape hangers are a, a, a double oh. plus bad idea because of this. Sure. Um, well, if they were breakaway, it'd be fine. Yeah. You, you, um, your, your breakaway handlebars idea isn't bad, but that's that's a very careful balance. Someone has to engineer that in. I think yeah. it's possible. I'm not smart enough, like right now, especially a couple of beers in, to figure out exactly how that's going to work. But I think that idea has merit. You know, one of the things that I like to say, there's lots of other things that I, you know, talk about or what's in this crash rating tool or whatever to think about. You know, nothing is more than the the the, the air the um the tank slope. But I really think that the airbag is the big deal. And so the first airbags that we talked about came out in 1973. Um, and it was it was uh, ten years later in 1983 that five car companies had airbags. Now here we are, 40 years later, all cars have airbags. It's about uh, 20 years, maybe 15, 20 years after this, the country mandated it. Now, right. so if we take and extrapolate that same data, the first motorcycle with airbag was the Goldwing in 2006. Mm-hmm. So by 2016, according to that trend, 
we should have had more companies offering airbags in 2016. So we're not, we're only three years behind that. So we're, we're actually on track to replicate what's happening in the auto industry if we can just start to make, get another bike with these things. In. Well, I'll tell you, here, here's something to make you feel a little bit better in terms of adapting car technology in terms of design and features the bike industry is usually somewhere between five and 10 years behind cars. So when the big four Japanese manufacturers look at design on their bikes, they'll look at what the car industry was doing five years ago. For whatever reason, that's how the fashion lines usually go. So if you look at, you know, we were talking about the new 636 Ninja. So go back five years ago and look at a Mustang or, a, you know, the Ford Focus STI and, and everything, and you'll see the same sorts of things in there, the same basic concepts. And you, you think about motorcycles adapting ABS. Well, yeah, five. We, okay, we're more than five to ten years behind on that one, but the, but the rate at which it's being implemented now that it is being implemented is similar to when it started catching on to cars. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but given that now all the electronic aids are being adapted at the fastest rate that the motorcycle industry has ever adapted anything from the car industry, it's possible that as long as it's within the next three years or so, will be on track that we could easily see something like this get implemented widely. That window hasn't passed us by completely. Yeah, I, I've been hard I've been hard on the motorcycle manufacturers, but in truth, they're doing amazing things with the crash prevention in the IMUs and the cornering ABSs and things. I think we're gonna see those those become more widespread and i think that motorcycles are going to be harder to crash i think they're going to like you know swiggy was saying they'll apply brakes they'll sense a crash they might do some things like cars are doing like if a pedestrian steps in front of a car there are lots of cars now that can if you turn your head and someone jumps in front of your car you know the car will just stop you know so we'll stop as I, much I, as it can yeah as, as much as it can you know and i applaud you know the the tech advancements but they're not even considering that their products are being designed in a way that that second collision they've never factored that in well the know, tragic part seems. again is that they can still design them that way just put the airbag in yeah i mean as long as you're not upset about you know maybe four or five maybe 10 pounds being added to the weight of your motorcycle or saying that the motorcycle that's roughly the same price or maybe five or a thousand dollars more is just a totally economically unviable option. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot of people who would go for that if it was available, but I feel like there's, there's a mental barrier to pulling the trigger on that. And I think there's a lot of things that can happen to, to narrow that gap, especially just, just having an actual, crash worthiness rating just a central mm -hmm. body that just puts out the numbers i agree because yeah. that pressures everyone to incorporate these things that make a big difference in that number well, yeah, yeah i mean just 
you know, maybe maybe you're Suzuki or your Yamaha or your Harley, and you hear, by the way, you are the worst motorcycle for crashworthiness. I mean, let's here's keep the in bare mind. minimum thing you about, have to do to change it. One thing about crashworthiness we haven't talked about is how a lot of big cruisers have the crash bars on them. Now, it used to be when you low-sided a bike the bike itself flipping on you and hurting the rider was a big deal. And now most of these big cruisers have these crash bars on them. It turns out people hmm. like to have them to protect the bags and the engine and the bike itself, but they do a lot to stop the bike from just crushing the rider when the bike so, goes yeah, down so, on the side. Yeah, you just pointed out something I said I didn't know of really anything, but clearly, you know, I don't think about this like every waking moment and I don't have many conversations with people this, right? You're like the maybe number three or four people I've actually talked to about this. Okay. So, um, the debate is so it's enriched, you know, my understanding too, because, you know, you do think about those crash bars. I mean, they are a crash protective crash worthy type add on is is hokey as they might look sometimes or people put their feet up on the foot pegs on them or something like that they probably do save people's feet or legs or whatever but you know if you ever watch that um there's videos on youtube and a guy crashes like a bagger on um mulholland drive yeah and his it doesn't do a whole lot for his leg actually but it probably helps some riders and it's better than nothing for some people but um, it may or may not work as intended. It, it might be easier to pick up or something, but maybe, maybe there's research behind the, you know, crash bars on a cruiser for whatever that I don't know, but I've low sided um, a, a bagger with crash bars. I can tell you the bars did something like absolutely. Go. I so low sided the exact same motorcycle. Yeah, you did. <laughs> we put it that bike out. is now on its third set of crash bars. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you guys are doing you're doing crash test dummy stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have sure. <laughs> it was research for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we've got a control bike. Yeah, <laughs> it's proper you know, science. Um, I, I guess. Hopefully, you know, somebody can hear this and, and, you know, just do something in that direction. You know, uh, one of my ideas in the past, I, I have different ideas, you know, for different things with motorcycling. And I, I wanted to make a couple videos um, using the motorcycle crash rating tool to kind of show people what kind of it could be done. You know, so someone could even someone listening to your show. I mean, if they have some sort of scientific background. You know, they could just grab my crash rating tool or talk to me or just don't even talk to me. Well, just become an authority on it. Explain your crash rating tool real quick. Well, the crash rating tool, I I wanted something. It's again, it's available at streetskills.net. It's really easy to see find there. But I looked at like the crash ratings, the crash worthiness and crash prevention ratings and how they did it with the um, Institute Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. And they have like good, acceptable, poor, and so forth. And so what I did was I tried to take the the information from the, the articles and the research and say, okay, well, clearly an airbag is better than not having one. Um, a severe tank slope is not as good as a flatter one. Spoke wheels are better than carbon fiber, right, and cast oil alloys. Um, different frames and fairings. They they also talked about wheelbase and top speed. Obviously, if you have a 
uh, these are more subtle things, um, the traction control and stuff like that. And so I sort of have a little table on there and an explanation that says, okay, I have one, the, the top rating for my thing is a super feature. So if for airbag, it's either super feature or poor, <laughs> there's yeah. no good or acceptable. Right. Right. But for fuel, for fuel tank slope, super feature would be the highest ranking and it's the seats level with your tank and then pour, it goes all the way down to pour. And I kind of have this little, like, um, you know, uh, the degrees of slope uh, as like a guide for people and, and just a checklist. So you would take your motorcycle, you would go to the table, you would find a motorcycle of your choice and you'd go right down all the things, right down to horsepower, top speed and stuff like that. And it basically says that, you know, if you get a certain number of these things, how many points add up, it just gives you kind of a rating. And again, I, it's not a scientific thing that I created. It's more of something I just built as a quick thing that you could look at to get an idea, you know, of where the bike would fit. If, if there were an, an authority on these crash worthy and crash prevention yeah, features more, more than anything it exemplifies the problem, which is if you go and buy a helmet, there's, you can either go and look at the ECE rating. You can look at the Snell rating. You can see if it's a DOT rated helmet, or you can go and look at like the, the sharp ratings for that helmet. And there's science behind that. Really what you want to know is you want a scientific quantitative measure that says, Hey, if you get into a front-on collision at 30 miles an hour, here is the number of Gs, here's the max G threshold that it will reduce your impact by, and here's the total number of Gs it will reduce it by. And that's going to work into a scientific safety rating where the higher the rating, the safer you will be. And it really just kind of exemplifies that that doesn't exist and that's what we need yeah i mean if you think about when you you said people don't care about the car ratings as much anymore because they just assume everybody's doing it there was a time where people walked in and they were concerned about like how well does this car handle in a crash you know i'm buying this for my kid or whatever yeah and i want to make sure that it's safe so why why can't consumers have some rule um on a motorcycle because I don't think it's going to, the purpose isn't so that we can flip off the manufacturers. You make a piece of shit. The, the idea is that we let them know we're watching. We care. We want you to improve this. We want you to think about this. Yeah. That's well, all the purposes. Yeah. So something that, um, that I, I found was through both the U S and the EU, um, uh, it's not that motorcycle accidents have increased, but motorcycle accidents are a larger proportion of injuries and fatalities in motorcycle in motor vehicle accidents because of the fact that motorcycle safety has not kept pace with car safety in Thank terms you. of that's sorry, exactly what I'm saying in here. terms of crumple zones you know, side curtain airbags, uh, crash detection, automatic braking, autopilot, all the different features, 
it's not kept pace. And it's kind of a new trend. It's really happened in the last three, four years. And so now motorcycles seem exceptionally dangerous just because they've stayed where they were and cars have gotten better. Something that you're touching upon now that I think is very important too is I talked earlier about like the government getting involved or the entrepreneurs taking over. I think for the survival of what we do, we need to take this over because the government's not going to help us in this regard with the safety. And, and let me tell you, um, you know, where we're going with this, there's this uh, thing out there called the road to zero. Um, I'm pre- it's, it could be called something else. The, the United States is involved with this thing. They want to get us from, you know how many people die a year in um, motor vehicle crashes? Uh, Any idea? I think it's like, I could say. it's like 40,000. Yes. Is it the shoes? Yeah, it's about 40,000. So they, they, they want us by 2030 or something. They want to get, I forget what it is. They want to get us down to zero roadway deaths. So one of the things that has me a little spooked, and again, I'm not a doomsday guy. I'm a pretty optimistic person, but this is like kind of reality here. I rented a car. It was a Mazda CX-5, and this thing was um, unbelievable with the tech. Like it would do adaptive braking on the cruise control. It would do all kinds of neat stuff. And I see that cars are only getting better at overcompensating for our errors, okay, for compensating for, for driver error. So what's going to happen is I, I believe that the fatality numbers, they may not get to zero, but I think that we're going to drop, based on what I got in this rental car when I took this car and the features I've seen and I used and I experienced, I think we're going to get down 20,000 in the next 10 years. I, I'm hoping to God we get down to less than 20,000 fatalities a year. Oh, right. Happen- driver aids will do that alone. Yeah. Right, right. But what's gonna, here's what's going to happen, guys. They're going to say, oh, my God, we're five years out. We have road to zero. We got car drivers down. We're stuck with these pesky motorcyclists. So guess what? If we outlaw motorcycles on public roads, we're now down to zero with the stroke of a pen and a vote in the Senate, you know, or something like that. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. People will be screaming bloody murder, but they're bureaucrats. They want a number you know, they're, they're shooting for zero. And I think that if we can't do something, you know, to get our numbers down, just like Swiggy said, I mean, we're representing a larger portion of the fatality pie. And I think, you know, if they invented a motorcycle today, they wouldn't, they'd be outlawed. I think the only reason why we can ride these on the street, like we said earlier, is because they've been around a hundred years, you know? So Um, they, they hate us out there, the safety people. (laughs) I agree. If motorcycles had never been invented, it would not be invented today. Yeah. Maybe. However, I I don't know. I I am I am always just in just instinctively going to push out push back on the we need to curb what we're doing for our own interest because somebody else is going to come fuck us up. That's that angle's never going to work for me. But what happened, but, Swiggy? Uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Give me the button, then I'll tell you what I was going to say. Well, it's it. This is the same. This is a weird kind of thinking that I have seen happen with, um, especially like there's this weird kind of simultaneous conspiracy that goes around with people thinking that because self-driving cars are going to be here in 10 years, 
and virtually all brand new self-driving cars after 10 years are going to be self-driving, that driving your own car is going to be illegal and that riding a motorcycle is going to be illegal. And I understand the calculus that they're doing in the 10 seconds that they've thought about this, but it doesn't make sense on a quantitative analysis because how does insurance work? It works because there is a certain probability that some accident or some risk is going to happen to you. And we are going to take that risk, add some percentage for our own profit. And we're going to multiply that by the cost of that accident happening. And that's what we're going to charge you. So if everything goes well, then we're going to make a profit and you're going to be happy because you didn't risk going bankrupt. The same thing I, happens yeah, everywhere yeah. else. This is, there is a risk analysis and it all happens okay. this way. Now I think, I think you're right. Okay. That like, I mean, I can't see a day that they're going to out motorcycles, but, but before, like when I was a teenager and you guys might be to have talked about this in the past, other people have, I think in the eighties, there was a big scare with sport bikes in laws and out, you know, and outlawing certain motorcycles and things like that. Is it spring a bell to you guys? Yeah, I, I can connect with this a lot. I'm, I'm a, a few years old in Spooky, not that much, but I remember the late eighties, early nineties. I was, I was a young kid, but I do remember up through like even till about the mid nineties there, it was a time that I only see reemerging now that it was very easy to scare large numbers of people. I don't know if anyone else remembers the satanic, uh, satanic cult scares in the early nineties. <laughs> Do you remember this, John? Like a lot of mothers were convinced they were satanic cults, killing babies in daycares and stuff. It was completely imaginary, but like, like millions of people believed it today. People think that their kids are getting cancer from vaping off of jewel pots. Well, right. This is this is a scientifically <laughs> impossible impossible well, thing. Maybe and not there's impossible. N- but there's no yeah. superstition associated with it. But it's that's what's happening today. Right. It's today still a is thing. today is another time in which it's very easy to scare large groups of people. I think it has something to do with like there was a media technology, you know, TV and radio becoming its most sophisticated, purified form in that era before we switched over to digital media, which has now really become as sophisticated, as manipulative as it possibly can be. I think that's the correlation between the two time periods, which makes it very easy for people to put out a scary message because scary messages get eyeballs. I think that is actually the most poignant thing you've ever said on the podcast. Oh. That's- <laughs> it only took eight beers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. you were talking about people being scared in the 80s, John. What was your point? No, my my point was not satanic, but that I I think that the government started to muscle in. Again, I wasn't I only have heard bits and pieces of what happened. They they didn't like high spot high horsepower sport bikes and they were um that's why they had to like go to lower CCs and stuff like that. I I I think that it all worked out in the end. You know, they we came out smelling like a rose, thank God. But, but I, you'd have to, I'd have to do more research and look into what, what that was. I know I've heard a lot of experts kind of talk 
over the, you know, for time in the past about like, you know, they wanted to restrict horsepower, restrict, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, well, let's not pretend that the eighties and nineties did not have their excesses in the motorcycle world. Yeah. Because they absolutely did. This is an era that brought us the VMAX and and other And the Z one RTC and well, the H two but... and well yeah, that's that is seventy. It's been a long, hard road with a lot of casualties and a lot of poor decisions, even for the given era. Uh yeah. I I, I know what John's saying though. There was these these 600s these 750s these one liter sport bikes came around and people did freak one there were a bunch of motorcycles riding around that didn't look like people thought motorcycles thought they should look i'm sorry there were a bunch of bikes riding around fast ones that didn't look like people thought motorcycles should look so that bothered them a lot but two, they were really, really fast on orders that had never happened before. You know, we've talked before, like this late 80s, early 90s period where you get real race replica bikes for the first time. And they did dial things back a little bit. They reorganized how race classes went. We've talked about these switches from the 600s and the one liters. And, you know, before that, you know, around this time, 750s were the super bikes. Yeah, 750 was an inline four class. And it was a superbike class, and that crept up to one liter. Then, you know, around what was it, uh, 2002, 2003, they jumped, they took it back down to 800s for superbike racing for like MotoGP in the four stroke era. And yeah, they, they yeah. play around with it because, yeah, you get situations where the, the technology for the speed outpaces the safety or even just how well people are prepared to deal with the bikes, right? You know, we're talking about crash worthiness and crash prevention. You go back to these bikes in the, in the eighties and whatever. Well, they've got these frames that just don't, you know, flex rights under, under the extreme conditions and the, and the, or the frames will flex and they'll snap back and they'll cause tank slappers and crazy things coming out of corners. They're just not good. There's not built for it. Well, there's the even, suspension that's yeah. not built for it. And the, and other things that will just make the bikes awful in extreme situations. Well, there's even people today who protest the electronics that the current MotoGP bikes have because they make the bikes rideable for the amount of horsepower they have. Right. And that's what it's taken to get them up to, you know, that ridiculous amount of horsepower that they have is that you have to have the electronics for the rider aids. Yes. Like that's where we are now. Yeah. The bikes are pushing 300 horsepowers because that's how much horsepower it takes to make that level of technology sketchy. So the riders are still on edge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You could have an exciting race with 50 horsepower, but when you include all these rider aids, you have to keep up in the ante in other areas. So there's this, this balance where the, the riders are playing on the edge and therefore it's exciting to watch. But anyway, we digress. Yeah. We're at two hours and yeah. 15 minutes yeah. and we can keep so, talking about this forever. Yeah. This is clearly yeah. a deep yeah. subject. Yeah. I just, you know, again, I, I, I wasn't sure if you guys would get back to me on this. I mean, we go back and forth through emails sometimes and, you know, I got the request, Hey, you want to come talk about this? And, 
you know, it, it, again, it was just, it just resurfaced in my life. I, I am working on my corporate confident things and, you know, I had the book and the other stuff and I'm, you know, teaching classes on the road and stuff like that. So I, it's, it, it, it was nice to have this conversation again because I really haven't had this conversation really with a lot of people. And definitely it's been like since 2016 or 15, since I, you know, actually gave the speech at the, at the talk on this. So, you know, you're bringing awareness. That's all we can really do. You know, there's things that your writers, you know, that, that are listening here can do. And, you know, basically just slow down, think about the, you know, what's in front of you when you, if you were to get in a forward crash, just pay attention, slow down, um, you know, figure out how to make your quick stops, emergency stops, just be ready, you know, for that thing to do anything you can to reduce your, your forward, um, you know, forces into, into the tank specifically, but other things, you know, keep buying those heat light vests, you know, do those things all, everything helps, you know, it's just the one thing that is missing is that second collision protection. So as a strategy here in terms of if we, if we all want to be, um, what's the word? If we all want to actually promote this and pressure the manufacturers, I think the weak spot here is Honda. We've got to go after Honda because Honda is always in terms of safety in the industry on the scale of things, it's their jam. It's true. And this is where we've got to go. And we got to say, hey, Honda, Honda who loves safety, do you want to be even safer? Do you want to make everybody else look insane? Hey, here's isn't some this, things you can do. Yeah. Isn't this where um, Pete says, please hire us? Honda. Yeah, Honda, please ideas. fucking hire We're us. just sitting here waiting. Honda's the only... He, well, in, he's in brilliant this case, here in this. No, Honda's in this the case, only company that doesn't trade on a badass image. Honda's the only one. If you look at Suzuki, Kawasaki, BMW, Harley, whatever the advertising is for all of them, it's lifestyle, it's edgy, it's speed, it's fast graphics. Honda is the only one you'll find that never trades on a thrill or anything like that it's in 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 a weird way even in 2019 there's still remnants of that you meet the nicest person on a honda sort of thing and he swiggy's right they will respond to things like this that's that's who the company fundamentally is yeah so honda it's their priority list or else you know yeah priority yeah yeah. I just think, you know, maybe their their design department says, look, we got an airbag on there. We're the first. No one's even touching us. We're a leader in this category. We got a bike with an airbag since 2006. So until somebody else gets in the, gets in the market here, we're just going to sit on our heels. Right. I, I don't know. Well, you know, I mean. It's a corporation. Oh, Honda, right? Honda will escalate. It's like Kawasaki is is the company that will escalate in performance at any given moment. You put out a fast bike, Kawasaki will escalate quickly in performance. Honda has always escalated in features. Like, Mm, right. Don't fuck with Honda when it comes to features. And this is where you can say, okay, you don't have to put an airbag in every bike, but just say, put an ECU in every bike that can do that job and you say all right okay if you maybe only 10 percent of your bikes have ecus 
if you increase the number of ECUs you make in your bikes by five times, the price maybe doubles, you know, on the scale of economies. You know, Honda is more than willing to do the math on that and say, hey, we're just putting a port that you can plug a jacket into or a tank bag into that then gets the signal that has the crash det- detection. You know, Honda is the company that can think on that scale and make that happen. I and agree. then then they're ahead of everybody yeah. else, and everybody else is like, oh, shit, we've got to do this now okay. to keep up with Honda. I agree, but now we're approaching two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. Not there quite yet, but we're getting there. So right. this is a good length. Yeah. We've made a <laughs> lot of amazing points, but we've repeated right. a couple now. And True. we're in danger of slurring our words. So I think we need to bow out gracefully <laughs> on this before we do yeah. damage to our cause. So I'm just yeah. going to take control here yeah, and say move. we're going to we're going to glide this <laughs> we're going to glide this plane home and say, uh, John, it's been fantastic talking about this. This was I knew this was going to be interesting and this was going to spark a lot. So I'm really glad that we did this. I'm yeah, gonna, great. Also remind everyone, go ahead and leave this show. I'm doing I'm gonna start mentioning again for another month. Everyone needs to start leaving us ratings and reviews again. It's your cost of admission for listening to the show. We get John and people like him to come on this show and talk about cool stuff like this. We get people from interesting companies to talk about their products and services you may not know about. We do things like drive our asses out to races and aim to cover things for you. The least you can do is hit five stars. Come on. Are you that selfish? You can't take seriously 30 seconds of your time. I think you can. So do that. And then I'll remind you also, the best thing you can do as a motorcyclist this year is go see a race and then stay safe and stay tuned. That's out from me, Swiggy and John, and we're going to do the outro. You guys ready? Let's go. And I don't want to die I just want to ride on my motorcycle Mm -hmm. Cold 